Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, and it's a series we've entitled Backstory because what we want to do is, as we examine these stories, is not just look at what may be familiar to some of us, but try to seek some of the implications that are behind it, some of the Old Testament references that connect it, and, and get the fullness of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us through these amazing stories. Now, some of the parables are very popular, and they're ones that we, we know well. We've already looked at the Good Samaritan, or as I prefer to call it, the, um, the heart of God, because that's what's being revealed there. We've also looked and explored a little bit of the prodigal son, which might be better titled the prodigal father because of the way he lavishes his love upon us. This one is incredibly significant, but it's not one that we tend to pay as much attention to. But from God's vantage point, it is communicating a message that is absolutely critical. And as we look at it, we're, we're going to, hopefully, the Holy Spirit will expand our understanding of this parable of the vineyard. Oftentimes, it's um, titled the parable of the, the wicked tenants or renters or vine dressers, and, and it certainly deals with that, but it has much deeper meaning, especially as it relates to God's people, Israel, to the Jewish people. So let's set the context a little bit here of what, what's happening. This parable occurs shortly after Jesus clears the temple. He's come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's been welcomed and hailed as King of Kings. The people were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which means save us now to God in the highest. And they were welcoming him. But when he enters the temple, he sees that the temple has been corrupted. It's become a place of commerce. They're making a profit off of what should be a place of prayer, a place of refuge, a place of learning and discovery a place of forgiveness. It had become a place of power. And Jesus is deeply grieved, and he cleans the temple. And when that happens, the religious leaders of the day are upset because he's messing with their income stream because many of them got a cut of what was happening. There were money changers there, just like, just like you have on the streets of Prague. You had people out there who were charging incredible rates to exchange one form of currency for another. That's what was happening in the temple, especially when people would come in, uh, like at the time of Passover, from the outlying areas. They would have to exchange their money from wherever they came from. And so there was a great deal of profit being made. And so these leaders are, are deeply upset over what Jesus is doing and over the authority that he has over the people. And so they ask this question. Look at it in Matthew um, 21, verse 23. This parable occurs in Mark, uh, Matthew, and in Luke. And so we're going to look at it some in, in both Matthew and Luke um, because there's some nuances that we get from both aspects of the telling, the recording of this story. But look at Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to, and a better translation of that is actually confronted him. They didn't just walk up and say, hey, Jesus, how are you doing? They got in his face, okay? So that's, that's what's underlying here in the Greek. They confronted him as he was teaching. 
So it would be like if I'm teaching here and Vartan comes up and says, that's not right, Drew, and he slaps me in the face really good because he's been wanting to do that for a while anyway. So in, you know, if, he, if he was to do that, that's the setting of what's happening here, okay? It's, it's aggressive. He comes up to him, confronts him, and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Who allowed you to clear the temple? And Jesus, rather than directly answer their question, because he knows that they're trying to trap him, they're seeking a way to to kill him, to eliminate him, he asks them a question, which is Jesus' way so often. He, He often answers a question with a question to get people thinking. And he asks them, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do the things that he did and his ministry? And they go huddle off to the side, and they begin to debate, well, if we say it's of God, then he'll ask, why didn't we listen to him? If we say it's of man, we fear the crowds because he had a great impact. And so many of the people here in Jerusalem right now, their lives were transformed by the ministry of John the Baptist. So they say, I don't know. They have no answer. So Jesus says, neither will I answer, but in truth, he gives an answer in this parable. This parable is incredibly powerful in what it's going to reveal. So if we're looking at it, the first thing we may need to ask, because, you know, in our culture, a vineyard is is a wonderful thing, but we really think of it primarily in terms of, you know, ordering wines from the south of France or from here in the Czech Republic and Moravia, some of the great wines that are there. Or if you're from the United States, it's from Napa Valley. That's what we think of when we think of a vine and a vineyard. But in biblical terms, it had a much greater significance. The vineyard is the picture of God's people. In fact, the national symbol of Israel, of the Jewish people in the Bible, is not the Star of David. In fact, the Star of David only really came into prominence, prominent use about 200 years ago. The symbol that is most used is or that was used in the Bible, is the one that maybe if you grew up in Sunday school or whatever, you saw the the picture of the two guys carrying the cluster of grapes on a pole because it comes out of the book of Numbers where the spies went into the land and they said the land is a land full of milk and honey. It's pleasant. It's beautiful. And they brought out a cluster of grapes. And, And when we think of grapes, you know, we're thinking, you know, just a cluster like this. Not very impressive. Let me show you a good Israeli fertile land cluster of grapes. Go to the next picture. That's a cluster of grapes, okay? Now do you get an idea why they needed a pole? It's a lot of grapes. It's a lot of fruit that's being produced, okay? That's the picture. And this is, in the scripture... It is the picture of God's people. In fact, in the temple in that day, there was what's called the golden vine. All around the top of the temple was a, a, a vine made out of gold that was some 60,000 pounds or roughly whatever that is in kilos because I can't do the math that fast in my head. It's a lot of gold at the top of the temple all showing clusters of grapes as tall as a man. That's what decorated it because it was the national symbol. So when Jesus is using this imagery, he's talking about God's people. And he's very um, specific about it. The Old Testament doesn't have very many parables. 
There are a few scattered here and there, but one of the most significant is the song of the vineyard, which is found in Isaiah chapter 5. And when Jesus is telling his parable, the background of his story, the backstory is Isaiah chapter 5. Here's what it says just in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So when he's talking about this, he's talking about his people. Now for us to really understand this parable, we need to be able to look at it with three different viewpoints in mind. There is the immediate viewpoint, or what I'm going to call the close-up. He's telling a story directly confronting the question about his authority. And he's directly confronting the corrupted religious leaders of the day. That's the close-up view, the immediate view. There's also a broader overview that refers to the kingdom of God and God's people throughout the ages, whether it's Israel or the church. God is giving a message and he's saying, you're my vineyard. You're the ones that I have poured out my heart, my life, my investment, my gifts, my grace into as the people of God, and I have some expectations of you. The third view, the one that often gets neglected in this, is the mirror. When we look at this parable, we can't just look at it from a historical standpoint and an overview of theology to see how it refers to God's people, we must also allow the word of God to stare us right in the face and recognize that you and I are God's vineyard. He has given us life. He's given us protection. He's given us a purpose. He's given us all these things that are represented in this vineyard. Because he has an expectation for your life and my life. He has an expectation for the church and the people of God. He had an expectation for Israel. And that is that our lives should bring forth fruit. Our lives should make a difference in people understanding who God is. And so the question we need to ask as we begin to really explore this is, God, is my life producing fruit that is honoring to you? And if not, would you reveal to me areas in my heart, areas of disobedience, of rebellion in me that's keeping me from being the fruitful person you want me to be? Now, in this parable, there's some key characters that are represented. First of all, the owner, as we heard in the scripture, um, the one who planted the vineyard is a picture of God. Um, he says this in Psalm 80, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. God is the owner. He is the one who planted the vineyard, his chosen people. He appointed religious leaders to watch over his people, um, to teach them God's word, and to ensure that their lives would be fruitful. He gave them a purpose, and unfortunately, they were unfaithful. 
unless we be too hard on the religious leaders of Jesus' day and throughout the history of the Jewish people, we need to recognize that the same thing has happened in the church. When we look at our own history, we see how many times our leadership and the church itself became corrupted instead of being what God had called us to be and to do. Well, the evil tenants or renters here are the unfaithful religious leaders in Jesus' story. He's addressing them directly. He's pointing out their heart and their hypocrisy, and he's pointing out ultimately their rebellion. Let's look what it says in Matthew 21, 34 through 36. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. He's the owner of the vineyard. He deserves some fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, the wording here is representative of just how far off track the religious leaders and political leaders in the past, how far they had gotten off of God's message and purpose. It says that they beat one. And in the, in the scripture, that means either it's a reference to beating with a fist like they did to Jeremiah or to Micah who was hit by Zedekiah, the false prophet, or to be hit and struck with a scourge, with a whip, much like Jesus was. They killed another. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when you read through the story of the Bible, you, you see that the chief priests and the religious leaders throughout history, they executed quite a few people. They had four ways that they could legitimately justify killing someone. They could kill them with a sword. They could strangle them. They could, um, with the sword, they would actually behead them. They could stone them to death, or they could burn them. They all found ways to justify that. The one way that they couldn't put someone to, to death legally was to crucify them. That was outside, it was considered a curse for someone to be hung on a tree, and so therefore they couldn't do it. But you see, God in his wisdom, that's why he orchestrated and worked in history so that it would be a combined effort of both Jews and Gentiles that put Jesus to death. That's why they had, a, had to appeal to Pilate to, in order to get that death sentence carried out on Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's a representation of the fact that all of us ultimately are the ones who sent Jesus to the cross. Not this group or that group, but every sinful human being throughout history. So they chose to abuse them, to punish them. They stoned Zechariah. They cut Isaiah in two. These servants of God are representative of the men and women throughout history who have faithfully tried to turn hearts back to God, who proclaimed the message of the scripture and the message of the gospel. Well, when that didn't work, 
He moves farther. Look at verses 37 and 39 of Matthew 21. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This taking up of the son and casting him outside of the vineyard to kill him is a prediction by Jesus of what's going to happen to him in just three more days. He's going to be taken outside of the city and crucified. He's going to be outside of the vineyard, outside of Jerusalem proper, and be killed. Those to whom God had entrusted his vineyard had proven not only unworthy, but so self-focused that although they recognized the son as the rightful heir, they were unwilling to give up their position and sought to usurp God's plan and power. Now, if we want to really understand what's happening here is Jesus is using this story to reveal truly the depths of their heart. When it says, that's the heir, let's kill him and take the inheritance, what they're saying is, we want to be God. Their pride is coming forth. And just as we looked last week at the rich man and Lazarus, it wasn't proof that kept the rich man or his brothers from believing, it was pride. In each of us, the most dangerous thing for us spiritually is our pride. Because our pride wants to be on the throne, wants to be in control, rather than give up control to God who deserves it, who is the rightful owner and heir of our life. Well, here comes the judgment. Verses 40 through 46. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. Understand what's being said here is the religious leaders are giving an answer and pronouncing the judgment they deserve on someone else. They're pronouncing exactly what they deserve because they're the ones being represented in the story and they're saying this is the right punishment to be cast out and punished. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here in this passage, Jesus is speaking of the birth of the church, how his message was now going to go out to all the nations. It was going to be taken away because of unfaithfulness and entrusted to others, but God has an expectation for the church as well and for you and I that our lives are to be spiritually fruitful. We're to make a difference or we're no better than the religious leaders of that day. This quotation about the stone is a quotation that comes from the Psalms in Psalm 8, 118, 22, and 23. 
And this psalm is part of what's called the Hallel. It's, it's a Passover hymn. And it's actually part of the psalm that was sung when Jesus rode in in the triumphal entry, when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and waving the palm branches. This is one of the verses out of that song that they're singing. So they would have remembered just singing this just four days before that they had sung this song, and Jesus is saying, you're proving it. It is coming true. There's going to be judgment. The stone, the one that the builders or the leaders rejected, has become the foundation of everything. That's what it's going to be built upon. And God pronounces judgment. And, and in these, this stone where it says, and one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, when you come to that stone, to Jesus Christ, your pride has to break. You have to be changed or it's not real. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It speaks of Jesus' two advents, his two comings. He came first as the suffering Savior, offering us God's grace in a beautiful way, saying, if you come to me and humble yourself, yes, you'll be broken of your pride, but so that you can be set free and have life. But if you do not respond to Jesus Christ as the Savior, then we will have to face the stone above, which is Jesus' return as king of kings and judge. And it will crush all who rebelled against him. You see, there's no way for us to be neutral about Jesus Christ. We either will humble ourselves before him, embrace him as savior, and honor him as Lord, or we will face him as judge. It's sobering, but it's true. Jesus must either be your Lord in this life or he will be your judge in the next. Let's take this and, and try to apply it a little bit to our life. This all revolves around a question of authority. It began with the question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus didn't directly answer it, but he does with this parable. His authority is that of the son of the owner, God. He is God himself and everything has been placed under his feet. Jesus cleared the temple because his house had become a place of corruption rather than a place of prayer. Do we honor and obey God's authority? This is critical to understanding this parable for us personally. The wicked tenants wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted what belongs only to God. Worship, control, judgment, power, those were all the things that they desired to hold on to for themselves. But the vineyard itself is a symbol of God's work and grace. His work and grace always point to him, to his glory. They wanted what God had, just as Satan wanted it and rebelled against God. Pride says, I will have my way. I'll do it my way, rather than submit to God's. 
So what about you and I? Is Jesus our authority in our life? Is he the one in control of who you are and what you do? You see, ultimately, it's not just a question of authority. It's a question of ownership. The vineyard belonged to God. He had every right to receive its fruit, to expect that um, those who were working in it would give back to him because he owned it. The same is true about our life. Where it says here in verses 33 and 34, the master of the house planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to his tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit draw near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Now, in, at first glance, if we're not familiar with, with um, a lot of the scripture, we see these details that are listed here about him, him digging it out and putting a wine press in, a tower and a fence about it. And we just think that's just extra bits to a story to add color to it. But it's not. He's talking about the investment that God the Father made in his people. In fact, there are eight verbs in verse 33 that point to the intentionality and the work of God that he did in the vineyard. And the same thing is true in your life and my life. The planting. God has given you life. You exist because God chose to give you life, to create you. And to create me. There's a fence that he's placed around it. God has provided for you. There's a tower in it. God has protected you. A wine press, which means God has given you a purpose. Just as the purpose of a wine press was to take the fruit and then be able to turn it into wine so it could be shared, God has given you a purpose. Your life has meaning and significance, and your purpose is unique and distinct, and it's designed to bring honor to God and to overflow in a way that is shared with others. You see, everything we have is a gift from God. Therefore, everything we have belongs to Him. But am I treating my life as if it belongs to God? Or am I simply wanting God to bless my plans, my ideas, my purposes, instead of seeking his own? Am I producing fruit? Well, that brings us to the very heart of the story. In, um, in the Middle East, especially in ancient times, the way stories were told is a little bit different than how we would tell them in the West. In the West, it always points to the end of the story, to if it's a joke, it's the punchline, or it's the moral of the story occurs at the end. But in the Middle East, they have a different structure in the way that their stories work and their poetry works. And the focal point of the story is right in the middle. Everything flows to that middle point and from that middle point. And in this case, it's connected because it begins with the owner, and then in the middle it points to what the owner is going to do, and then it, in the end of the story it again points to the judgment of the owner. 
The focal point of this story is not about the wicked tenants. It is about the owner. And what it does is it points to the extreme grace of God. It answers a question, what more could he do? What God had done already for Israel was that he had sent his servants. He had continually sent people to to bring the message of truth and realign them back to an accurate view of who God is, to understand his word and to live it. But the response was to abuse them, to stone those servants, those prophets, and to turn away from them. God humbly sent his servants to the renters. And when they killed him, he bent down even lower. You see, his sense of true nobility took a risk that is even even greater. I read a a story um, this week about uh, King Hussein of Jordan. And, And he did something actually very, very similar. This was back in the, in the 70s, there was a, a rebellion, a coup was taking place, and he had gotten word of it, and some of his generals were rebelling against him, and they had already killed many of his, his guard, and, um, and rather than flee, what he chose to do was to appeal to the sense of nobility, especially in the Middle East, there's a sense of nobility that governs much of what is done. That's why it's, it's interesting. You'll, you'll see in, in conflicts where um, a woman is able to say things to those who are rebelling against them that a man never could because there's a sense of nobility in how you um, at least tolerate a woman. Now, there's other areas where they have very little tolerance, but there's a sense of nobility that fits within the culture. It's very important. And King Hussein knew that. And so what he did is he asked for a helicopter and he went by himself and he made himself vulnerable and he appealed to these generals personally and said, if you want to kill me, do it right here and now. Let us not go into war where many of our people will die. By humbling himself before those who were rebelling against him, he was appealing to their sense of nobility and they had a change of heart and the coup ended. That's what God is doing here. He's appealing to the sense of nobility. You didn't respect those I sent to you, so what I'm gonna do is send the one closest to my heart, my son. Now I want to show you this in Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah um, chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 is the song of the vineyard. And And it has great parallels. We don't really have the time to go into all of it today. But um, I want to show you what happens. He talks in the first few verses about how he planted a pleasant vineyard and he built a a hedge around it. He built a tower in it. He put in a wine press, just like what Jesus reveals in this story. And look what he says in Isaiah 5, verses 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? 
I've already given you life. I made you a nation. I gave you my word, the Torah. I gave you the tonic, the expanded word of God. I've, I've communicated my heart to you. How much more can I do? That's the question that's left hanging in Isaiah 5 that Jesus answers in the parable of the vineyard. The answer is God would bend down even lower to show the extreme grace in his heart. Spurgeon said this, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. It is God coming to us to show his immeasurable grace. This is why Jesus in the Beatitudes commands us to turn the other cheek because he's calling us to represent him. Everything that's recorded in the Beatitudes is a self-portrait of God and his incredible grace towards us. John chapter 1 verse 16 puts it so well when he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. God went lower still. I want to try to allow words to paint a picture. And, and there's, a, there's a song called Lower Still. Um, now, some of you, if you go and look this up, you will think that your pastor is the strangest, weird, has the most crazy taste in music. It's a heavy metal song, okay, just so you know. But it has awesome lyrics. And, and the guitar riff's not bad either. Um, it's, it's a little hard, and some of you will absolutely hate it and think it's an abomination. But listen to its lyrics. And here, here's what I want you to do. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, and, and basically it's putting in lyrical form what we see in Philippians where it says he humbled himself. So I want you to just close your eyes and just listen to the words, the lyrics of this song. Look, he's covered in dirt, and the blood of his mother has mixed with the earth, and she's just a child who's throbbing in pain from the terror of birth by the light of a cave. Now they've laid the small baby where creatures come eat, like a meal for the swine who have no clue that he is still upholding together the world that they see. They don't know just how low, but he has to go lower still. Look now, he's kneeling. He's washing their feet Though they're all filthy fishermen, traitors, and thieves, now he's pouring his heart out, and they're falling asleep. But he has to go lower still. And we all said in unison, there is greater love to show. Hands to the plow, further down now, blood must flow. All these steps are personal. All his shame is ransom. Oh, do you see? 
Do you see just how low he has come? Do you see it now? No one takes it from him. He can't take what he freely gives away. Beat in his face. Tear the skin off his back. Lower still. Strip off his clothes. Make him crawl through the streets. Lower still. Hang him like meat on a criminal's tree. Lower still. Bury his corpse in the earth like a seed. Lower still. Lower still. Lower still. The earth explodes. She cannot hold him. And all therein is placed beneath him. And death itself no longer reigns. It cannot keep the one he gave himself to save. And the universe, as it shatters, the darkness dissolves. He alone will be honored. We will bathe in the splendor of him as all heads bow lower still. This is what our Savior has done for us. This is the message that is key to this parable. It is how far God would go for you and for me. He would give his own life, the life of his son, the most precious thing in all the universe for you. So you see this parable, yes, it's about the stubbornness and rebellion of the religious leaders. Yes, it's a story about God's people and the expectations that he has that we have fruitful lives, but ultimately it is a story of how far God has gone for you and for me. So what are we to do with that? Well, first, have you trusted him? Have you seen his love and said, Lord, I want to know you? If you're willing to go that far, to be beaten, scourged, crucified, to die in the place where my sins placed you, I want to know you. The scripture tells us to just call upon his name. Anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the first place. But the second one for all of us is also, is he the Lord of your life? He's the owner. Are you serving him as Lord? Is your life producing fruit? If not, you're missing out on the deepest and greatest joy there is in all the universe. Becoming the person God created you to be. To have your life make a difference in this world and to help show forth his love, his truth, his grace and pour it into the lives of others so that they may know him as well. God is patient. In fact, one of the lessons that we could do is we could place what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9 on top of our text. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the message of this parable. Jesus is saying God was gonna go even farther to try to reach us. And it answers the question of Isaiah, what more could he do? So my question for you is, what more could God do to win your affection? 
than he has already done. He's proven himself. He has proven his love. But there are also sobering words at the end. If we do not receive him, then ultimately we will face the stone that crushes. We will face him as judge. This parable is a message of love. And God is appealing to your heart today to grab a hold of him and say, God, I want you. I need you. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak into our hearts and lives. Lord, that you would take a story that, that maybe its details aren't very familiar to us in our culture and And Lord, that you would make it a reality in our own heart and life. Lord, make the truth of what you have done for us come alive in our minds and in our hearts. Holy Spirit, shake us over the greatness of your love. Let us not leave this place unchanged. Transform us, Lord. You have gone so far to prove your love. Lord, I pray, I implore you, don't leave, don't let people leave here indifferent about you. Stir our hearts, we pray. Do a work in the midst of us. Do a work in me. Oh, Lord, you've been speaking to my heart about areas where I'm unfruitful, where I'm prideful, selfish. Lord, I pray you do your work in each of us and change us, Lord, so that we can become men and women that rightly represent you. Lord, our world desperately needs to see an accurate view of God's people who are changed by the power of his word, who are living examples of grace and truth and love. Oh, Lord, do a work in us. Make us a fruitful people for your kingdom. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna sing and worship the Lord together. And and after after our song, we'll have intercessors over here um, that if there's a spiritual need in your life, maybe you're just struggling, maybe just hurting. Maybe you've, you've gotten to the point where you can't really sense God's love and you need to recapture that. Whatever your need is, we just want to invite you. We want to pray alongside you and let you know you're not alone. And so we invite you to come over and pray with our intercessors. And if you have questions, feel free to come and ask me or one of our elders or someone that's leading in worship uh, or someone that you know here from the church. God has good things for you. And we want to be instruments to help you connect with his goodness and his greatness. Let's worship the Lord together.